Over the last several months, um, I was going to say weeks, and I realized that that wasn't true, uh, we've been examining some of the face-to-face encounters with Jesus. We've been looking at the things that he has to tell us that are personal to us and the things that he shared with those he walked with. And right now, we're in the middle of Jesus last week. Um, Things are beginning to intensify. Jesus is communicating the things that are most important to in his heart to his disciples and to us. And so we're right now at this passage out of Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 where Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. He's talking about the signs of the end of the age and about his return. They're incredibly important things for us to understand. Now, oftentimes when we come to prophecy, it's challenging, it's difficult, in part because people go so many different directions with it. But what I hope you hear, as we shared last week, is is that understanding of what God's purpose in prophecy is. Prophecy affirms his message. It affirms the identity of Jesus Christ, that he alone is God come to earth in the flesh. But ultimately what prophecy does is it's designed to refocus, just like a pair of glasses, to refocus our hearts, our minds, and our lives on that which is ultimately most important. As I shared with you last week, the purpose of prophecy and the result of prophecy should always be obedience now, not an obsession with what is next. If we become obsessed with what is next and we're trying to figure out every different circumstance, every different event that happens in our world, we will miss what God is actually calling us to, which is obedience now. That's his purpose. And one more thing, just as review, prophecy ultimately is about a person. It's about a who and not a when. Every prophecy, those in the Old Testament that have already been fulfilled, those that are still waiting to be fulfilled, is ultimately about one person, Jesus Christ. When you look at it, it's far more important for you to look at what he is telling us about himself, about what God is showing us about his character, his nature, his expectations, his plan, and his purpose than it is to try to figure out any scenario where we can figure out what's coming next. So with that set in mind, that review, we're going to go back and we're going to look at the scriptures. I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you have a Bible with you or if you have an app, to Matthew chapter 24. And uh, we're going to be focusing in where we uh, left off last week. But in order to prepare our hearts to explore this, we're going to listen again to the first 14 verses of Matthew chapter 24. And before we play that, um, we've been using the, for those of you who are visiting, we use uh, the Luma Project as we're going through the, the Gospels, which is a great resource, by the way, because it's in so many different languages. And it just allows us to somewhat not only hear the Word of God, but experience it to a certain degree. So Father, we come before you and we ask that you would speak to us, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, you'd remove those distractions, Lord, let Let us get out of the way. I certainly pray, Lord, you would let me get out of the way and allow us to hear from you. So we come expectant to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's play the first clip. 
Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. All right. In that passage, the disciples asked Jesus two questions. And it's important, if we're to understand what's going on, is we need to understand that Jesus is answering both of these questions at the same time. And to, to a degree, his answer is, is intermingled together. It's connected. He's, asking, he's answering the question first that they asked about when will these things happen, meaning the destruction of the temple. Remember, he had just told them that the temple that they were so impressed with that it would not only come down, but there would not be one single stone left upon another, which had to be amazing considering the massive size of some of these stones, stones that it would take, it would take even with modern machinery, it would be nearly impossible to move them. And yet, Jesus' prophecy comes true precisely. That's the first question. The second question, though, that they ask is, what is the sign of the end of the age and of his return? If we're to understand what Jesus is answering, we need to be able to see what he's communicating. And last week, I used the, the little illustration of, of monovision. So I had a little, little chart, and we had a beautiful set of glasses from Dr. Nina. You know, where monovision, what it is, is it's, you have one lens that's designed for near, uh, to be able to see what's in front of you, and another lens that's designed to see what is far. I have monovision. Um, I have corrective surgery so that now if I, look, if I look at you with just this eye, you're all blurry, just, just so you know. If I look at you with this eye, you are, are beautiful and amazing and incredible. 
Yeah, so you can, that's a clue now. You know, if I not like what I see, chances are I've covered this eye, okay? Just, just so you know. But between what's near and far, you have blended vision in the middle. And many of the things that Jesus is talking about is part of this blended vision. It is things that are common both to what was going to happen preceding the destruction of the temple and what would happen preceding the return of Christ and the end of the age. But he also gives specific signs for both events. So last week, we looked specifically at the near lens vision. Let me remind you of that just for a moment. Jesus' instruction about the the destroying of the temple. And he said the sign that was specific to that event was when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand that then those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains. And those who are on the housetops do not go down and take what is in their house. And let no one who is in the field turn back or take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. He says you need to look to see what's happening in the temple. And we, as we discovered last week, there were a series of events that began around 66 AD that showed that this desolation, this emptiness of the temple had arrived. A group of Jewish zealots had moved in, had taken over, and and were kind of having their last stance in their rebellion against the Roman Empire and the Romans who were occupying Jerusalem. They had taken over the temple, and they installed their own priests, one that wasn't qualified, one that wasn't part of the proper lineage, and they had made the temple of God something to be mocked. And later on, when the Romans did throw them out and destroy them, they also brought in their own standards into the temple and people were bowing down and worshiping it. And so there was destruction, there was um, a desolation that happened to the temple. And Jesus says, when you see that happening to his early disciples, you need to flee. And they did. That's the near lens. But what about the far lens? What is still to come? What are the signs, what are the indicators of the end of the age and of Jesus' return? Well, let's look here specifically at the symptoms that we see in the, in the passage of the end of the age, the things that are going to be happening that, as Jesus describes them, are birth pangs, means that they get more intense as it grows closer. And if we, if we had time, I would go back and show you in history um, from Josephus and Asubius and, and several other historians how the very signs Jesus mentioned began to intensify before the destruction of the temple, the earthquakes, the wars, the rumors of wars, those kind of things. But here's what he says, again, that's common both for what happened back then and what is coming. He says in verse 8 of chapter 24, All these are but the beginning of birth pangs. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
Verses 9 through 11 are birth pangs. They're things that are normal things that happen throughout this broken world that we have with wars, with false teaching, with so many of the things that we see that just capture our heart because it reveals just how broken our world is because of sin. Those increase, and and they were part of the indicators to the disciples that destruction was coming to Jerusalem. But here also in the second part of this, Jesus gives us some signs that indicate that the end is getting very near. And he says two specific things happen at the same time. Number one, because of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. A negative sign. In other words, many who claim to be followers of Jesus, many who were part of the church, fall away. And he gives some of the reasons. We'll look at some of those things that cause people to fall away. But at the same time, he says something amazing is going to happen. While more and more people are beginning to turn away, more and more and more and more people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And the gospel is proclaimed to all nations, all people groups. We looked at this a few weeks ago and, and, and examined you know, how many unreached people groups there were left in the world and how many unengaged people groups are left on the face of the earth. And if you remember, I, I told you that the, the statistics right now show that there are 218 unreached, unengaged people groups of more than 500 people. That's not very many. What it should cause us to do is is examine and say, how can we help reach more people? How can we help reach the peoples here of Prague? How can we be more determined to share our faith with others, with those around us? And how can we help reach the nations? And how can we engage specifically, intentionally in taking the gospel to those who have never heard the name of Jesus. I want to challenge you to be praying that God will show us a specific path to take out how we as a church, the International Church of Prague, are to engage in that. At the same time, the purpose of prophecy is to call us to obedience. We have already been called to be his witnesses. It needs to be a regular part of who we are and what we do. If not, we're being disobedient. So he says two things are happening at one time. One, more and more people groups are coming to faith in Christ. But the other thing that's happening is the love of many will grow cold. And actually what he says echoes what Jesus spoke to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. He says this to the church at Ephesus, but I have this against you. After telling them all the great things they were doing, Jesus says this, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore where, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Now here's an important question. How do you know if your love is growing cold? Because it can happen to any of us. And it's subtle. It's not like you wake up one morning and go, you know what, I'm just not going to be as loving today. I'm going to care less about others. How do you examine your own heart to determine whether or not our love is real or whether it's beginning to grow cold? 
Well, I believe the way that you do that is ask the Holy Spirit, first of all, to reveal your own heart to you, to use his word, to point out areas in our own heart where we're out of alignment with God's will and God's purpose. But the simple diagnostic is to examine who you are in relationship to others. Because here's the thing. The opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is self-centeredness. It is being selfish. Love is always outward focused. One of the greatest evidences that God is a, a trinity. He is persons of the trinity one god in three persons is that it says god is love you cannot have love without having an object or another one too loved a beloved in fact um augustine described the trinity as the lover the beloved and the love between them god the father was the lover jesus was the object of his love and the holy spirit is the love that flowed between them Now, it's not a perfect explanation, but it helps us to see that that in order to have love, you have to have relationship. And when you look through the scriptures, what you see is, is Jesus is always honoring the Father. He's always focused in on the Father, on doing the Father's will, on lifting up the Father. That's love. And the Father, when he speaks of his Son, he says, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You see, he's focused on Jesus. And the Holy Spirit points us both to the Father and to the Son. So the way to examine our heart is to see whether we are inward focused in our lives or outward. To determine whether or not our hearts have grown cold. Here's a simple way to do that. Are you more concerned about your own wants, your own needs, your own interests than that of others? Are you more consumed with what you think others think about you than about their genuine needs, about their hurts, about their struggles? When we examine our heart in that way, what happens when I look in the mirror of God's word and I see that, I realize I need to do exactly what Jesus told the church at Ephesus to do. I need to repent. And I need to go back and say, Lord, I want to be an instrument of your love to all peoples, to everyone around me. I want to love my wife as you love the church. I want to love the church as you love the church. That's what he calls us to. And if our heart is focused on ourselves, our love will grow cold. That's true not only in our spiritual relationship, it's true in marriage, it's true in every human relationship we have. We are called to be imitators of Christ who is focused on pleasing the Father and serving our incredibly deep need. That's how we imitate Jesus. So those two things are happening simultaneously. And he says here in the scripture, because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Paul says something very similar in 2 Thessalonians. The letters that Paul wrote to uh, the church at Thessaloniki, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, focused in specifically on the coming of the Lord. Because in one case, they thought they had missed it, and, and they thought because people had died, 
before the Lord came back, they were confused. And then a letter seemed to come that they thought was from one of the apostles to say that Jesus had already come back. And so he writes a second letter, the letter of 2 Thessalonians, to correct their misunderstanding. And he says this in that. He says in chapter 2, verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. What he's saying is to the church is you don't need to be fearful that you've missed it. And as we explore more of the passage in Matthew, we'll discover there is absolutely no way to miss the return of Christ. Anyone who says he came in secret is a liar. It goes absolutely against everything Jesus said. And many cults are built on that premise. But also, he says, there will be a rebellion that comes that permeates humanity that the love of many will grow cold, not just in the church, but in the world. It will become more violent. It will become more divided. It will become more selfish. That will grow, a rebellion against God that is demonstrated in a selfish heart. But also there will be revealed one who is a man of lawlessness. Um, In Revelation, he would be called the Antichrist. He's one who is, who is the focal point of rebellion against God, who is motivated by Satan. So the two parallel things happen that indicate the end of the age is near. Many fall away from faith. And we need to understand, following Jesus is not easy. It's, salvation is absolutely free. It's a gift of grace. But Jesus said, to follow me, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and pursue him, live like him. It's not easy. It's hard until you discover that when you do, when you do deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow him, he fills your heart with so much more joy, so much more interest and purpose and meaning than you ever imagined was possible. And so he asks us, here's the thing, when you you struggle with that, here's the thing I want you to understand. You cannot fill full hands. God only fills hands and hearts that are emptied and opened to say, Lord, I give everything back to you. You take it, you use me in whatever way you want. And then what he does as we release everything of who we are, he fills us with more and more and more of himself and you become saturated with the presence of God and the Holy Spirit and you're filled with joy and it touches absolutely everything you do the great exchange that God asks us for is the greatest gift you could ever receive when Jesus tells you to deny yourself it's because that is the pathway to ultimate joy in union with Christ Jesus that's why he calls us to do it I better keep going or I'll start to preach. All right, what's next? Yeah, I get myself in trouble. So two things happen. Many fall away and the news of Jesus Christ goes to all people groups. Well, what are some of the things that cause people to fall away? Well, first of all, a lack of genuine conversion causes people to fall away from the faith. True Christianity is not a religion. It is a grace relationship with God that is received by faith. It's not about church membership. It's not about doing good things. It's not about trying to keep all the rules. It's not a set of ideas. 
God loves us and provided a way for us to know, enjoy, and honor Him and to live united with Him through what Jesus Christ has done. Many people who are seeking because they know something is missing, they may turn to religion. They may try to to think maybe that will answer and fill the need within me. And they may turn even to, to a church but they pursue it as their way to get to God. Christianity is God coming to us. And it's radically different. There's nothing we can do to earn our way, to earn God's favor. God has already done it in coming to us in Jesus Christ. And so true Christianity, true conversion happens when we come to the end of ourselves and say, Lord, I can't do anything, but I call upon the name of Jesus and say, save me. That's how we're converted. That's how we're born again. But many have a surface understanding of religion rather than a relationship with God. Secondly, a lack of discipleship causes people to fall away. It's entirely possible that those professing Christ do not have instruction to understand who they are in Christ. That's why we sing songs like we did um, uh, earlier in, in Who You Say I Am. We need to understand who God has called us to be, our identity in Christ, the incredible privileges he's given us, as Alazar read it earlier, as joint heirs with Jesus Christ. When we don't understand that, we try to do things of our own strength, and the walk of faith becomes a burden instead of a relationship that is lived out of love. And if we seek to live a life of performance, we can become more and more empty instead of truly following the Lord. Also, hypocrisy can cause people to fall away. Jesus, in Matthew 23, gives eight woes, eight pronouncements of judgment upon the Pharisees, the religious people who were supposed to set the example of how their hypocrisy was driving people away from the kingdom of God. Do not think that that hypocrisy ended with the Pharisees. It is real and very present in our own lives and in the church. We need to make sure that we live the way Jesus has called us to live. We need to keep our hearts sensitive and tender to the Holy Spirit to allow Him to correct us because hypocrisy will drive people away from a correct understanding of who Jesus is. Many were falling away. Today, many people look at the church and they see tribes. They see allegiances or um, political alliances. Others see what Christians are against. Let me tell you very clearly what Jesus says that the world around us is supposed to see in and through us. He says this in Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All the focus is on God. We are to love others as Christ loved us. We are to give grace to others as Christ gave grace to us. Hypocrisy causes people to fall away. Persecution, difficulty, hardship, trial, according to what Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 9, causes people not only to fall away, but to betray one another. 
in recent uh, years and recent months, you see more and more people who are um, who had a certain degree of Christian celebrity who are falling away and now are actually speaking in a way that is against Christ and against his church. Jesus said this will happen because those who didn't have an authentic conversion experience weren't genuinely born again, had no presence of the Holy Spirit in their life to transform them. They just went through the motions. Also, he tells us in verse 11 that false teachers will cause many to fall away. We need to be wise. We need to be discerning. That's why it's so important for us to know God's word and to spend time in it. You need to examine everything I say from the pulpit or in in personal conversations as well to see if it aligns with Scripture. I I confess to you, I'm fallible. I only understand a certain degree of it, but I'm seeking humbly for the Lord to teach me. But the same is true with every other person and every other teacher. We need to examine it to see if it lines up with God's word. We need to see, does it line up also with with history, with with how the church has proclaimed um, who God is and what he is like and what we are to do over time? Does it meet the right standards? If not, we need to recognize that it's coming from the enemy and that can happen even within the church. He's seeking to deceive and to lead us away. So the question is, will we follow Christ or will we fall away? Well, there's great news. There's incredible news because there is someone who keeps us from falling. You don't have to do this in your own strength. We can't do it in our own strength. Jesus tells us this in John 15 and 16. He says, but when the helper comes, which is the Holy Spirit, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. God will preserve those who have genuine faith in him because the Holy Spirit lives in the heart of every believer who has truly confessed Jesus as Savior and as Lord. I'd really like to unpack this. I'm just going to tell you where to turn. Sometime this week, read Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. That's the victory of those who overcame, who didn't fall away, who were sealed with the Holy Spirit and the celebration that they have in the presence of the Lord. It's a victory song. And it says that they stand clothed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, which in the early church, a palm, uh, a palm leaf was a sign of victory. And often it was put on the tombs of those who were martyred for their faith because they remained faithful to the end and were victorious in their faith. So what about the sign? What is the specific sign of Jesus' return? Well, I've got another little clip. We're just going to look at 10 verses here um, and examine this very, very quickly. So play Matthew 24, verses 21 through 31. Then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. 
At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out, or here he is, in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Jesus tells us you're not going to miss it. It is going to be incredibly clear. And he gives us four signs here in this passage that indicate what his coming and the end of the age will be like. First of all, he says there will be a cosmic change that we see in the sky. The sun, moon, and stars will be darkened. There's either some kind of calamity that happens in the heavens, or there's something that happens on earth that blocks out the light. And this is important because as it blocks out the light, and as no one can see by the sun or the reflection of the moon or the light of the stars, what they do see, every person on the face of the earth, is they see the light of Jesus Christ coming in his glory. And you cannot miss it. Because every other light has been put out. In the darkness, Jesus appears. Do I have a clue what that means? No. I just know this is exactly what it says. He says, that's what's going to happen. You're not going to miss it. He is not coming in secret. By the way, this was also one of those blended signs because in Luke chapter 21, verse 11, Jesus said there will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilence, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. He said that sign will precede the destruction of the temple. Now, here's how we can take Jesus' word on it. In AD 66 through AD 67, there appeared over Jerusalem, according to the historian Josephus, a sword-like star. Very similar to what happened in the prophecy of Balaam concerning the coming of Jesus Christ at his birth in Bethlehem, there was a sign, there was a sword-like star that appeared over Jerusalem and a comet that lasted for a whole year. It's exactly what he records in the War of the Jews. Josephus, who was there, who was employed, in essence, by the Romans to record this war and the events that were happening, it said there was a sign in the heavens that brought great distress upon the people. 
just as Jesus predicted. And it occurred for a year leading up to the time when the zealots took over the temple and it became desolate. When they began to defame the temple of God, there was a sign that preceded it. Jesus' words were precisely filled, just as his words that every stone of the temple would be unearthed and turned over. And as we looked at last week, the reason it was is because the fire in the temple caused the incredible 27,000 kilos of gold that ordained the temple to melt and cover over every stone. So the only thing that the Romans could do was to dig up every stone so that they could get the gold off the temple. Jesus' words were fulfilled. He is coming back and no one will miss it. Secondly, he said here in the passage, all the peoples of the earth, every people group will see Jesus coming. No one will miss it. No matter what continent you're on, what hemisphere you live on, everyone will see Jesus coming. Not only will they see it, but he says there's a trumpet that will sound and they will hear his coming. We will not miss it. He says, God's people, those who have trusted in him, both those who are alive and those who have preceded them in death will be gathered from all of the earth and from heaven. Jesus' coming will be obvious. Jesus' coming also will be unimaginably powerful. When he uses the title, Son of Man, here in this chapter, he uses it six times, and it's a title that does not have to do with his humanity. The title he uses, Son of Man, comes from the book of Daniel, and it addresses his authority. Because this is what it says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. The Ancient of Days, which is God Almighty, gave this Son of Man dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that will not be destroyed. It's very similar to exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 18, where He says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. When Jesus comes back, he does not come back as a suffering servant. He comes back as an all-powerful, righteous judge and king of kings before whom every knee will bow and tongue confess that he alone is God. His coming is powerful. Also, his coming will be unexpected. I'm going to run long today but it's that or you're gonna, I'm going to just keep going week after week after week. So here we go. Fourthly, Jesus' coming will be unexpected. Even though he's announced it, it will take people by surprise. Listen to what it says in verses 36 through 44. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be, men will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord 
is coming. What he's saying here is that life is going to go on. People are going to be pursuing relationships. They're going to be feasting. They're going to be drinking. They're going to be seeking their own comfort. They're going to be doing their work. This passage where it says two are in the field, one will be taken, one will be left, ultimately saying is, is they're busy about their careers. In the homes, they're busy about their family life. They're focused in on the here and now and paying no attention to spiritual things. For some people, though, it's difficult because you, you look at this passage and you say, it causes a question, okay, how can Jesus not know the day or the hour? Does anybody have a struggle with that statement? Okay, my wife does. This is good. All right, but concerning the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. That puzzles some people, but I'm telling you, when you understand it, it It won't. It'll make absolutely perfect sense. Jesus is both fully God and fully human. But to become truly, fully human, Jesus had to put certain limits on himself. This is part of the incredible beauty of what God did in the incarnation. Understand, Jesus as God is omnipresent. That means he is present everywhere. Does it bother any of you who maybe struggle with this question that Jesus walked from place to place? Think about that for just a moment. He could have said to the disciples, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. You walk. I'll meet you there because I'm already there anyway. When he says, I have to go through Samaria, he could have just go, boom, I'm there. He's omnipresent. In the same way, it talks about how he took his omniscience and he set it aside. He took it off like a robe. And so when the woman touches him and he feels power go out of him, he says, who touched me? In order to truly experience the human reality, Jesus had to be hungry. His body needed sleep. He had to humble himself and become truly like us. And in his humbling out of love for you and me, he set aside some of his power. That power has been given back to him as he ascended and he has been glorified at the Father's right hand. It is all there because it was preserved, but he set it aside to truly experience what you and I go through. That's why he says, only the Father knows. There's more reasons when, it, when you follow the understanding of a Jewish wedding, but I don't have time for that. But it will take people by surprise. So what? Jesus is coming. Well, remember, the purpose of prophecy is to call us to be obedient now, not focus or obsess on what is next. So what are we to do? Jesus ends his message. In fact, the last sermon that Jesus gives is at the end of this passage. And he says, the so what of all of this is that you are to live out my love for others. If you truly love me, as we're commanded to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength, then the only evidence that proves that that love is real is if you love others and care for those. 
So the best way I know to end this sermon is not for me to say anything else, but for us to listen to Jesus' last sermon and allow his words to penetrate our hearts, to call us to repentance and to call us to action. Let's play the last clip there from Matthew 25, 31 through 40. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison? and did not help you. He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. But they're also filled with incredible promise. He calls us to build our lives upon his love and to live for his glory and to proclaim his worth by being Jesus to those around us, by having our lives match in its character and likeness to who Jesus is, and by serving one another. Let's build our life upon his love. I'll invite you all to stand one last time.